Now, this may not be a popular thing to say, but I'm going to risk it. Is anyone else out there happy that Valentine's Day is over? Okay, about half of the congregation just said amen. I'm not going to say which. Okay, now, don't get me wrong. I have no problem with the thought of setting aside a special day to express our care and affection, our love for our wives, for our husbands, for our families and family members or our significant other. And I would add that you would be hard-pressed to find a more biblical theme in the Bible than love. In fact, if you do a search on love in your ESV, you would find that the word comes up 551 times in the ESV translation. Love is a thoroughly biblical concept. But I can't help but feel that though our culture seems thoroughly infatuated with love, it truly has no idea what the word actually means. As I wander the aisles looking at Valentine's Day hearts and gifts and cards and any number of things, I find myself overwhelmed with the fact that I don't think our culture actually understands love. And if you look back on the history of our country, that's not shocking. In the 60s and 70s, for those of you that remember it, we were told that love is all about sexual fulfillment and expression. This culminated in the summer of love in 1967, for those of you that remember. That developed more into the idea that love is primarily a feeling that another person should inspire in us. You think of the lyrics of Foreigner's famous 1984 rock ballad, I want to know what love is. I want you to show me. Inspire in me that feeling of love and affection. Having failed to find anything sustainable in that, our current culture moved on. We moved on to more self-focused love, and you can find popular songs today like Love Yourself and I Love Me. It seems to me that our culture has thoroughly lost the concept of what love really is, though love is still held up as the perfect virtue, as the ultimate virtue. In his book, in Jonathan Lehman's book, The Rule of Love, I think he gets it head on where our culture is at. He says, today you can justify pretty much anything by invoking the word love. If they really love each other, then of course we should accept, dot, dot, dot. If love is love, or if God is loving, then surely he wouldn't, dot, dot, dot. Yet, notice what's happening in these statements. We're no longer interested in the God who is love. Rather, we're interested in our own ideas of love, which become God. God is love is traded in for love is God. I would submit to you that love is God in our current culture. And yet in spite of that fact, we totally miss what love is really all about. We totally miss what the Bible and what God tells us love is really about. And into that cultural mess, into that cultural milieu, John's words are crystal clear in the book of 1 John. One of the defining characteristics of genuine faith in Christ is love for others. He doesn't speak primarily to love for ourselves or to a feeling of love or to a sexual gratification. He says the defining characteristic of a believer in Jesus Christ is their love for others. If you can't see that in the book of 1 John, we're going to be reading in chapter 2, verses 7 through 17. Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. 
The old commandment is the word you have heard. At the same time is the new commandment I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I am writing to, or I write to you, children, because you know the father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, and the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Would you pray with me? Father, it is such a joy and a privilege to be here this morning to sing your praises with your people, to celebrate the work that you've done in our hearts, to take joy in what you're calling us to be and what you're calling us to do. Lord, we pray that as we continue this service, that it would be an ongoing act of worship, that we would lift you up in everything that is said and everything that is done, Lord, that Christ would be exalted, that the gospel would be clear, and that our hearts would be open to hear what you have to say to us this morning. Lord, use this time for your glory and for the good of your people. In Christ's name, amen. Well, I know many of you have been with us since the beginning in 1 John, but I know some of you are also new. So let me try and catch you up to speed to where we are as we drop ourselves into the middle of this book of 1 John. 1 John is writing this general epistle to the churches in Asia Minor as a letter that's going to be moved around between those churches. And in it, he begins by highlighting the incredible privileges that we have as a result of Christ's work. He said that we now have a relationship with God. We now have fellowship with one another, and we have complete joy. Remember chapter 1, verse 4, and we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Then last week, as we moved into the second chapter of the book, he encouraged us to evaluate our professions of faith through the lens of morality or the obedience test. He encourages us to consider that those who Follow God, who is perfect light, ought to walk in the same way in which Christ walked. Ought to walk in the light. Ought to strive for obedience. Not in perfection, but in a zealous desire to obey what God has called us to be and to do. In our text together this morning, John puts the second evaluation before us. He encourages us to evaluate our affections, to apply, if you will, the love test. To ask, what do we love? Who do we love? And he begins with a command. We'll start with this command to love. Look at verse 7 and 8. It says, Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word you have heard. At the same time, is it a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Now, we said this was going to be tricky when we got here because we've got this old and new commandment. We'll cover that in just a moment. But before we get to that, I just want to focus on John's tone here. 
Look at the very first word in chapter 7. He's about to deliver some very hard news, some difficult evaluations to these people, and he starts off with beloved. Now, this term beloved means dearly loved friends. He expresses his affection and his care for those that he is speaking to, and though he has hard news to deliver, he delivers it with a pastoral tone. He says, everything that follows, everything that I'm about to tell you is said with your best interests at heart. It may be difficult, it may be painful, it may be a hard lesson or a hard pill to swallow, but I'm saying it in love. Having set that tone, John delivers a hard message. What is the command that he delivers? He says, I am writing you no new command, but an old command. Well, what is John's command here? It's interesting to note that he doesn't actually state what the command is. I don't know if you picked up on that, but he doesn't actually say what the command is because he seems to know that his audience will know precisely what he's talking about. And as you read down here, and he talks about this new command or an old command, it seems to be a restatement of that text we just read. John chapter 13, verses 31 through 35 should come to mind as we read John's words here in 1 John. This idea of a command to love. Christ said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. We talked about that last week. Here he says, they will know you are my disciples by your love for one another. Now, I think one way that we can confirm that is actually by looking at how John reiterates that. If you turn to the right in your Bibles, to the book of 2 John, it's just a couple of pages to your right, so you can easily get back to 1 John. In 2 John, which is a follow-up to John's first letter, he's a bit more explicit with his instruction. Look at 2 John, and there's no chapter because there's only one chapter in 2 John, verses 5 and 6. Here John writes, and now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, does that sound familiar? But the one we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. In the second letter, John is more explicit. He says, this is the new commandment, that you love one another. Another, I think that's the command that John has in mind. Now, why is that command an old commandment? Why can he say it is an old commandment? Look at the two descriptions that he uses back in 1 John chapter 2. But an old commandment that you had from the beginning, and the old commandment is the word that you have heard. He speaks to two things that they would have already known. He says, this new commandment, this old commandment, is something you've already heard. It's something you would be familiar with. Now, some take this and they interpret it and they think that means the essence of love that is found in their initial salvation, their receipt of the gospel. They knew that love was a part of that initial message and that's an ongoing reality. But I think John actually has more in mind here. I think John has exactly what Mario talked about earlier in mind. This idea that through the Old Testament, this command was clear to love your neighbor. We see that in Leviticus, we see that in Deuteronomy, and Paul puts those themes together in Romans 13, verses 8 through 10. You can check that out this afternoon if you have a little bit of time, where he says, all of the law, all of the commandments are summed up in this one command, love one another. And so John agrees with Paul, I believe, in this idea, and he says there is this old commandment. You've known from the Old Testament law and from the beginning of when that was delivered to you that there is this command to love one another. But if it's an old commandment, then how is it a new commandment? He also says, look at verse 8, at the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you. How is this a new commandment? He says it is new in that it is true in him and in you. 
Something about the newness of this commandment is the fact that it is true in him and true in you. Well, that means we have to answer the question, who is him? Who is he referring to here in him? In order to understand that, we have to go all the way back to the beginning of the chapter. This whole discussion has been talking about Jesus Christ. In verse 2, he says, well, go back to verse 1. My little children, I am writing these things so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteousness. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. From that point on, as John continues his thought, the hymns and he's refer back to Jesus. And so it is said, this reality of love is true in Christ. Now, that's exactly what Mario was talking about. What Christ did on the cross, his death on our behalf, the truth of the gospel, is exactly how this commandment is fulfilled and is realized in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So John can say it is true in him. He also says it is true in you. Did you pick up on that? In verse 8, he says it is true in him and in you. How is it true in them? Because, chapter 2, verse 5 and 6, they as believers are in Christ. Right? If you go back to verse 5 and 6, we read, But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. So John is laying out this clarity. He's saying this command has been there from the Old Testament, from the beginning, and yet it is new, it is realized in the person work of Jesus Christ who then calls those who walk after him to walk in the same way. And so he can write then, the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining because Christ initiated that reality. While it is a command, while the command, excuse me, to love is old, it is fulfilled and made possible only through Christ and his action on the cross. Perfectly exemplifying what love looks like. Laying down his life for those whom he loves. Therefore, we come to a first realization about love, and that is that Christian love is commanded. Now, this is interesting, right? He is commanding love, which, again, runs a little bit contrary to our current culture, right? We don't command ourselves to love. We fall into love, right? We don't make ourselves love someone. We, it just happens, right? That's how our culture understands this. And yet, Christ here, through John, writes that we are commanded to love. This sort of sacrificial love that is realized and only made possible through the person and work of Jesus Christ is a command. It is something we are called to do if we're following after Jesus Christ, not something that just accidentally happens when nothing else is going on. What does that mean? What does that mean for us? If love is a command, what is the implications for our lives? Well, let me first start by talking to those of you that don't know Jesus. If you are sitting here this morning and you do not have a personal relationship with Christ, probably what I'm saying here doesn't make a whole lot of sense to you. It probably doesn't make a whole lot of sense. You're going, well, that's not exactly the way love works. I've fallen in love and I've fallen out of love and that's not how it works. We encourage you that the biblical concept of love requires that we recognize that true love is impossible apart from Christ. Godly love, love the way the Bible describes it, is only possible as a response to God's love. We love because he first loved us. 
What our culture calls love is simple self-gratification. And as long as you provide for me what I want from you, we will be okay. But the minute you quit doing that, I'm gone. And so we'll leave behind us a wreckage of relationships saying at one point we were in love, but now we're not anymore. We must recognize that love is impossible apart from Christ. But for the believer, that means that we must also recognize that for those of us that have placed our faith in Jesus Christ, love isn't optional. We who follow Jesus Christ, who say, my sins have been forgiven by my Savior, do not have the option to say, I don't really feel like it today. We don't get to say, that's something for super Christians. That's something for people that have really arrived as believers. Love is the bread and butter of fellowship in the church. It is fundamental to who we are as believers. We cannot say, and John's going to explain this in just a moment, I love Christ, but I don't love his bride. That's not the way it works. True love isn't optional. It's not reserved for those that we get along well with. It's not reserved for those who are nice to us. It's a command. And that means our love has to be sacrificial the way Christ is sacrificial. But as the rest of this book has been and how it will continue to be, John is quick to connect these theological realities to the practical implications for our lives. And he argues for, in verse 9 through 11, the proof of our love. In verses 9 through 11, what we find are three bold statements as John compares the regenerate person to those that don't know Christ. The heart of someone who has professed faith in Christ as opposed to those who don't yet know him. And notice, as we walk through this section, there's a positive statement in verse 10 about love, sandwiched in between two negative statements about hate. Okay, we're going to see that as we walk through this. And John is stressing some key comparisons. He is going to compare loving your brother to hating your brother. And he's going to compare living in the light to stumbling around in the darkness. So as we walk through these, look for these comparisons. First, loving your brother versus hating your brother. Look at verse 10. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. He advocates that what the believer ought to do is love his brother. Now, that means his brother and sister. That's not a just only the guys. Talk about everyone. Ought to be motivated by this love, this passion for other brothers and sisters, for other believers. And that is compared to hating your brothers. Look at verse 9 and 11. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Down in verse 11, but whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Here John compares the attitude of a believer to the attitude of an unbeliever. The believer has a love for his brothers and sisters. The unbeliever hates his brothers and sisters. And again, he's calling out these Gnostic people, these Gnostic teachers who would have said, I have been in the light and I know the true reality of God, but I don't really care about all of you. He's calling foul on that. He's saying, you cannot say, I have been with God, I know God, I love God, but I don't care about you. True believers, in much the same way that they cannot maintain an ongoing relationship with sin, true believers cannot maintain an ongoing hate for one another. 
the truth of the gospel will instead cause them to pursue love for one another. It doesn't mean they always get along. It doesn't mean that there aren't ever conflicts, but there's this pursuit of love because they have this affection and this heart for each other. And the impact of this is likened to a second comparison, living in the light and stumbling around in the darkness. Look back at verse 10. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. I love this imagery. Our culture says what? Love is blind. John says love is illuminating. When you love, you see better what things actually are. This is this image of walking around in the light and actually being able to see things. You know how this goes. When the power goes out in your house and you have to go from your bed to wherever you keep the flashlights, right? And you're stumbling around doing one of these things, trying not to trip over your children's toys or whatever you left on the floor, your shoes or whatever the case might be, and you're stumbling over everything. It's like, it's like somebody turns on the light. You can see where you're going. You can see what's coming. Instead of love being blind, he says love is illuminating and hatred is blinding. Look at verse 9 and 11. It says, whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. He expounds on this in verse 11. Whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Have you ever experienced this in your own life that there's someone who you can't forgive, someone who you struggle to have affection for, and that reality has blinded you to everything about them. Everything you hear about them just confirms how terrible of a person they are, right? And you twist and hear everything about them as that person is just terrible. You can't possibly see them in a positive light because you're harboring this grudge in your heart against them. John here is saying that love is illuminating, that sort of hatred is actually blinding. It actually causes us to not see things for what they really are. It causes us to see people in the worst possible light. It's like stumbling around the darkness and not knowing where you're going. So this is the comparison. Love versus hatred. Walking in the light versus walking in the darkness. I think John's point here is that Christian love is particular. Now, by that, I don't mean it's like nitpicky. That's not what I'm talking about. That it finds every reason for fault. That's not, that's not it. Christian love is particular. Christian love is specific. It is oriented toward a particular person. It reveals itself in brotherly love. He's saying there must be a love for brothers and sisters in Christ, or it's not love. It would be kind of like if on Wednesday... My wife and I are not big on Valentine's Day, which you may have picked up on. I had come home, picked up dinner for my wife, and brought her a nice card. And the kids are finally in bed, whenever that finally happens. And I look lovingly, longingly into my wife's eyes and say, I love everybody. I mean, it's true, right? Or it should be true. But that's not exactly what she wants to hear. If the love is not particular, if it's not directed towards someone, it's really not love, is it? To say I love everybody is kind of like saying nothing at all. I love the way John's gospel highlights what this sort of love looks like. Turn to the left of your Bibles to the gospel of John, chapter 15. I wrestled with whether or not 
to have this text read instead of John 13, but I settled on John 13 instead. I love the way Christ in his words here in John chapter 15 describes love. He says, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friend. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask in my fa- or my, the father in my name, I, or he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. Christ's standard for what love look like, looks like here in John chapter 15 is to love the way Christ loved. And Christ highlights the fact that he, number one, lays down his life for his friends, but also that he called them. Did you pick up on that? You did not choose me, but I chose you. He set his love on these disciples, and he said, you are mine. He says that sort of love should be responded to in love for God, which should bleed out in all the others that he has chosen. To be a believer, to be called into the church, into the family of God, means you have brothers and sisters. You may not always get along with them, but you are now committed to loving them. What he's highlighting, a love for God must result in a love for his bride, for his body. Now, I think there's a couple of things that are worth noting from this text that I think is critical. You can turn back to the right to the book of 1 John again. We'll be going back to that here in a second. But in this particular love, I think there's a couple of things that I think are really important to note about love here in this section. The first is, we should have a natural suspicion of our own hearts toward other people. When he talks about this idea of darkness, blindness, making us oblivious and festering and fostering this hate toward other people, I think we need to be really cautious of this in our own hearts. Our love very quickly becomes about us. It becomes about whatever people have done to us to offend us, whatever people have done to us to hurt us, whatever people have done, we begin to foster this sort of grudge and this sort of hatred, and we don't call it hatred, right? Because that would be unchristian. Instead, we just say, I just don't like being around that person. I just don't like talking to that person. I just don't like spending time with that person. Well, is that person a believer? We're called to intentionally love them. And we have to be very suspicious of our own hearts, our own heart's ability to twist and manipulate circumstances so that we see the people that have wounded us in the worst possible light. Be careful of your own heart. Be careful of this sort of blinding darkness of hatred. On the opposite side of things, I think we need to recognize that there's a particular love for believers that we all ought to have. If you have a love for Christ, if you have an affection and appreciation for what he's done in your life, there is a necessary overflow toward those that are a part of his family. Kind of like when you get married, right? People always say, when you get married, you're marrying your in-laws. Some of those of us that are married know exactly what that means. Those of us that aren't yet married will know what that means someday if you get married. You get that family. Because you love your spouse, you now have to love all those other people. I'm not bashing in-laws. Don't misunderstand me. But that's your choice. That's your obligation. 
kind of like that. When you choose to love Christ and follow him, you now have a family. There should be a particular love for other believers that expresses itself. Our love should be particular. Now, what follows in these next few verses might surprise us just a bit. If you were reading ahead and reading the text ahead in advance, you might have come to this section and wondered why it was here. As you see, it's probably offset by brackets. It feels as though John has spontaneously broken into poetry, which he kind of has. You see some familiar characteristics of Hebrew poetry in verses 12 through 14. There's some repetition. There's parallels. Your Bible probably has it kind of sectioned off, and it's to stress the memorability and the significance of this. And our minds would go, well, why don't you just go from verse 11 down to verse 15, right? Because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Verse 15, do not love the world. That seems to make sense to us. Instead, John, inspired by the Holy Spirit, decides to insert this little section, this hymn or this poem. And I believe that these verses are here to show us the source of our love. Verses 12 through 14. Reading through this section, one can't help but note the repetition. We see repetition both of who he's speaking to and we see repetition of what he wants them to remember. Though these verses don't, the verses don't break down in quite this same way, there are six stanzas, six sections that start with, I am writing, I am writing, I am writing, I am writing, right? And then he addresses three different audiences, children, fathers, young men, children, fathers, young men. You see that twice. And he has reminders for them, some important things that they need to remember. First, I want us to look at the audiences here. These audiences, in verse 12, 13, and 14, we see these three audiences. He says, I am writing to you, little children. Then 13, I am writing to you, fathers. Down farther, I am writing to you, young men. And he repeats that again in three more stanzas, this repetition of children, fathers, young men. Now, some people take this literally. to be like, he's looking at the children, saying, I'm going to speak to you children for a moment. And then he looks at the fathers and says, I'm speaking to you fathers. And then he looks at the young men and speaks to you young men. I don't really think that's what John's doing. I think he's using it more symbolically of positions in faith, how long somebody has been a believer, what their maturity is in faith. And he addresses all three of these audiences. The children, those that are young in faith, though it doesn't mean they have to be young physically. He addresses the fathers, those that are older, those that have been believers for a long time. And he addresses the young men or women, those that are in the middle. I think it's worth noting that John wisely recognizes that not everyone needs to hear the exact same thing. In the church, when it comes to this idea of love, some of us need to be challenged. Some of us need a bit of a kick to remember we are called to love. Others of us need to be encouraged. We have a particularly sensitive conscience, and we have a tendency to get very neurotic and in our own heads, and we need to be encouraged. So he addresses different people with a different message. He says, I'm writing you children, or fathers or young men. So I want to note one thing here real quickly. He notes this reality in the end in verse 14 that the word of God abides in you. I want to talk about how that relates to these reminders. So he addresses each of these audiences and he reminds them of something specific. What does he remind the children of? He says, first, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. And he goes out and kind of doubles down on that in the second section and says, because you know the Father. Now, John's going to make it very clear throughout the rest of this letter that those who have been forgiven have knowledge of the Father, that if you know Christ, you know the Father. And so this goes together. And so he reminds those that are young in the faith that their sins have been forgiven, that they know the Father. Those that are likely tempted to get very concerned, like, am I living correctly? Am I doing the right things? Am I doing enough? And be very concerned and almost get legalistic with it, saying, I don't know. Then he says, let me remind you that your sins are forgiven. Let me remind you that you 
know the Father. You're not called to be perfect today. You're called to be progressing. You're called to be moving forward. But you just need to remember your sins are forgiven. And there's some of you here this morning that are probably in that boat. Where you haven't known Christ for very long. And you may not know a whole lot about the Bible. And you don't know exactly what you're supposed to do in all circumstances. And John reminds you, your sins have been forgiven. Rest in that. Then he addresses the fathers. He also addresses those that have known Christ for a longer time. Verses 13 and 14, I am writing to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. It's interesting that this is the one section where he addresses with the exact same words twice these fathers. He says, here's what you need to be reminded of. Those of you who have been walking with Christ for a long time, you need to be reminded of the fact that you know Christ. You need to be encouraged in the fact that you know Christ. Again, remember, his whole reason for writing this letter is to give assurance to those that they would know that they know God. He says, I'm writing that you would be reminded that you know Christ. And then he addresses the young people, the young men, if you will, in verse 13 and 14. He says, I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you. You have overcome the evil one. He reassures them of victory. If he's reassured the new believers of their salvation and the older believers of their assurance and their relationship with God, he reminds those who are in the thick of it that they have been victorious, that through Christ they can have victory over sin. So it's important to note his one extra article that I mentioned earlier. Down in verse 14 he says, I write to you young men because you are strong. But where does that strength come from? It doesn't come from the vigor of youth. It doesn't come from this excitement and energy that comes with young age. He says, and the word of God abides in you. Your means to victory, your means of overcoming the evil one is through the word of God. It's an important thing to note here. But what is he doing here? I think he's making the point that our love for one another is based upon, is founded upon what Christ has already done for us. We love each other because Christ first loved us. He wants to remind them, to reassure them, and to help them know that Christian love is supernatural. We have to recognize this. If we have an understanding of what love is, we have to recognize that it isn't something that we generate in ourselves. It's not something that we make ourselves feel, that we make ourselves know. Instead, he says, you need to remember the truth of the gospel. It begins with and is motivated by God's love. It's something God did for you. It's something God is doing in you. Think back. Most of you know probably Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 through 24, because you memorized it in Awana or children's ministry. The fruit of the Spirit is love. And we tend to think in terms of apples and oranges and peaches and that sort of fruit. That's not what he means. It means the product of the Holy Spirit's work in your life is he produces love. He produces love. Love is supernatural. Christian love is supernatural. It's not something we make ourselves do. It's something God, through his word and his Holy Spirit, does in us. And so he takes them back to the truths of the gospel. He says, this is what you need to remember is the source of your love. It's not your own goodness. It's not your own work. And I think there's an encouragement there for us as well. For those of us that are struggling with this reality and desire to grow in our love, I think there's a model here that's worth emulating. 
If, if you want to grow in your love for other people, if you look at this assessment and say, I don't think I am exemplifying that well in my Christian walk, I would encourage you to review what Christ has forgiven you. He who has been forgiven much loves much. He reminds them that their sins are forgiven. When you dwell on your sin and the way you have rebelled against a holy God and what Christ has forgiven you, love is the natural overflow. The more we recognize what we have been forgiven, the more we will love God and love others. But if you want to grow in your love, I would also encourage you to remember what Christ has done for you. Easter's coming up here in a few weeks, right? And we spend time meditating on what Christ did, how he sacrificed himself for us. If that doesn't inspire love in you, I don't know what will. The fact that Christ chose to leave his home in heaven, to set aside all the privileges that he had, and to come down here and be born as an infant in the dirt. If that doesn't inspire our love for each other, I don't know what will. Thirdly, I would encourage you that if you want to grow in your love to Meditate on what Christ has given you. Notice he says that you have victory because of what God has done in you, because God abides, or the word of God abides in you. You meditate on the incredible gifts, on this relationship with God, and on this fellowship with one another, and on this complete joy that we can experience through Christ. How can you help but love one another? And lastly, and probably easiest to miss, if you want to grow in your love, I want to ask that you pray for what only Christ can give you. If you found that you have a loveless heart, that you are harboring resentment or bitterness or hatred toward your brothers, have you prayed that God would change your heart? Have you asked the Holy Spirit to do what only he can do? The fruit of the Spirit is love. Love, our love, Christian love, should be supernatural. It's not something you make yourself do it's something God does in you. But for John, that doesn't end the discussion because he still sees a major threat to love in verses 15 through 17. Now, this is a really challenging text because much like a professional coach watching tape and sizing up his team's opponent, John puts his finger on the great human threat to love. He begins exactly opposite of where he started by commanding us not to love. Look at verse 15. He says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. He issues this negative command saying there is something you ought not to love. If you are to love your brothers and sisters, you should not love, and the object is the world. Now this term, the world, is a little bit tricky because John uses it in a few different ways. In John 3, he said, God so loved the world. So if God loves the world, why would he tell us not to love the world? There's a few different ways this term gets used. The world is sometimes referred to like the whole cosmos, everything that God has created and the place, the planet that we live on and that idea. Sometimes it is used of the people that are in rebellion against God. Other times it is used for this domain that is ruled by Satan in an active rebellion against God. That's how he's using it here. Saying, don't love what the world loves. Don't love what those who are in rebellion against God Loves. The implication here is loving the world each equals rejection of Christ. I think James 4 is incredibly encouraging in this respect. Turn to the book of James. Hebrews, James, it's just a couple of books to the left in your Bibles. James 4, verses 4 through 10, I think makes John's point incredibly succinctly. James writing here about worldliness. 
describes what this attitude of loving the world looks like. It says, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do, you, or do you suppose that it is of no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace? Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, under or to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Notice what James is highlighting there is the same thing that John highlights here. He's saying there are two kingdoms. And to love this kingdom is to hate that king. If you are in love with the world, you are actively working against God's love. It says worldly love and godly love are mutually exclusive. You cannot love the world and then say, oh, and I love God too. This is the great threat to the sort of love that John is calling for here. And to emphasize the point... John describes what worldly love looks like in more detail. Look at verse 16. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. He offers this powerful description of what worldly love looks like. Threefold. Desires of the flesh, desires of the eyes, and pride of life. Now, what is he talking about here? The desires of the flesh is a way for John to highlight this love of pleasure. This narcissistic love of everything that makes me feel good. This is God in our culture. This is God in our culture. We do everything we possibly can to never feel uncomfortable, to never feel pain, to never feel hurt, emotionally, physically, or any other way. We do everything we can to insulate ourselves from the realities of the pain and death that is a part of this world. Because we love pleasure. We get addicted to things that make us feel good. We like to spend time doing things that make us feel good. And everything that doesn't make us feel good is seen as evil and is seen as worthy of being avoided. This is this idea of love of pleasure. It may manifest itself in any number of different ways. Our culture's obsession with sexual gratification. Our culture's obsession with experiencing fear of missing out experiencing everything the world has to offer, this joy and pleasure. We're addicted to comfort and pleasure in our culture. And he says this is a desire that is antithetical to the love of God. But he goes on and he says the desire of the eyes. This is the love for possessions. This is the sort of covetousness and desire for whatever they have I want. This is the keeping up with the Joneses. They've got a bigger house, so I need a bigger house. They have a faster car, so I need a faster car. They got a promotion, so I need a promotion. It is absolutely insane to me that within professional sports, there are those who want a raise simply because somebody else is now the highest paid person. So you have coaches and you have professional athletes who someone else gets a raise, and rather than saying, good for them, they're doing really well, they go, no, I need more money. And I don't say that to downplay professional sports. I say that to say that is everywhere in our culture. 
tell me that your heart doesn't yearn for something better when you see someone else has it. This is the desire of the eyes. This longing for possessions and for things in this world. And he culminates this list, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and lastly, the pride of life. The pride of life, this love of praise, this love of being acknowledged and being seen and being praised for what you have done. This is our entire obsession with social media, that we would get enough likes on our page to somehow feel worthy. We love praise. We love it when people notice us. And we get angry when people don't. Do we not? He says this is entirely opposite. This is what the world loves. And these are all forms of self-love. We love to feel good. We love to have things. We love to have honor and prestige in people's eyes. All these self-loves originate from the world. And John says they are not from God. And they destroy the sort of brotherly love that we are called to as believers. So John concludes this discussion by describing where these two loves lead. Look at verse 17. He says, and the world is passing away along with his desires. Saying everything that is involved in the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life, all of that will be vaporized in a moment when Christ comes back. He's like, you are spending your lives pursuing something that has no eternal significance. Instead, back at verse 17, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. You want something of eternal significance, you want something of eternal value, abiding with God will never go away. So are you going to choose to pursue the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life, or are you going to true, choose to abide with God? This is the choice. This is the command. This is what he's calling believers to do. This is what he's saying is evident in the life of a believer. I think fourth and finally, it means that Christian love is selfless. The desires of the world are all self-focused. They are self-gratifying. But Christian love, a love that is modeled after Christ, is selfless. It means rejecting worldly things. It means rejecting worldly values. It means being on guard of the fact that these things naturally sneak into all of our hearts. There is nothing more natural for the human heart than to have this desire of the flesh, this desire of the eyes and the pride of life to become what we're living for. He says Christian love instead is selfless. It means rejecting all of these forms of self-love and instead asking God to change our hearts. So evaluate for yourselves. What does it look like in your heart? Do you have this love of pleasure that you pursue gratification at all costs over whoever it might take to get there? Do you struggle with this love of possessions to always have to have more and to, to own more and to look better and to have whatever everyone else has? Do you struggle with this love of praise to be acknowledged and recognized and held in high esteem? There's a tendency for a text like this to be used legalistically. For me to explain what the text is saying and say, and this is God's way of you getting to know him. But it's important to note here that that is not how John is using this. 
John is not using this text to get them to behave better. John is using this text to recognize where their heart is actually at. Saying, are these attitudes that God is growing in you as evidence that you know him? Because that sort of love that God creates is selfless. It must produce this sort of selfless love. I think our culture is thoroughly confused. I don't think our culture has any idea what love is really all about. It is thoroughly bought into this idea of worldly love. But the question before us here this morning is whether or not we, as the church of Jesus Christ, do know what love is really about. Do we acknowledge the fact that love is something that is commanded by God, that we don't have the choice whether we love or don't love people? We are called to love people regardless of how we have been treated by them. Do we acknowledge the fact that our love is to be particular, that it has a particular object, that he has called us to love our brothers and sisters in Christ uniquely? Do we recognize that Christian love is supernatural in its source, that we can't generate it in ourselves, but we must look to God and Christ to supply it for us? Do we recognize that Christian love cannot be selfish, it must be selfless in its focus? cannot begin and end with us. It begins with God and overflows to others. It feels like this should go without saying, but I think John's point here in 1 John is that Christian love is Christ-like. I shouldn't have to say this, right? We should all know this. And yet that's John's point here. Christ obeyed every command of God. Christ loved everyone that God called him to love. Christ supernaturally loved people. He was never focused on himself. I think John's point here is that if there is no Christian love in your life, then you have to ask the question whether or not you know Christ. But if you know Christ, there will be this ever-growing love for others in him. All true believers will increasingly love other believers. Father, we thank you for the fact that you don't just tell us to do something and then leave us to our own devices. Lord, do you loved us enough to send your son to die for us. And then having done that, you call us to walk in the same way that he walked. To love one another, to forgive one another, to bear each other's burdens, to care for each other. Lord, we pray that that would be true of us. Lord, that you would create in our hearts a desire and a genuine affection and love, even for those that we don't naturally like. Lord, help us to be a church that is known as your disciples by our love for one another. In Jesus' name.